Well, thank you guys for uh, showing up this morning. It's always a pleasure to be able to worship with you in uh, God's house. Um, so uh, the center text that we're going to be um, rotating around as we touch on, as we look at God's attribute of holiness, um, what we're going to do is eventually get to Isaiah chapter 6, um, but the path we're going to travel is going to be looking at this idea that God is holy, um, we are not holy, and Jesus is the one who's going to fix that problem. So first what we're going to do is look at a definition of holiness, um, then we're going to see that Scripture gives us the resounding truth that God is holy and holiness is rooted in God, then we're going to see that we are not holy um, and we're going to look at Scripture's resounding truthfulness that man is sinful or man is unholy. We are opposite of God in this matter. And that presents for us the biggest problem in all of Scripture, but that Jesus Christ is the one who comes and fixes that problem by expressing the full holiness of God at the cross. So, if you remember and cast your mind's eye backward, we've been looking at the God is series for a while. And where we're at now is we're right in the midst of what would normally be called or is usually called God's moral attributes. Things like God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy, His grace, and His patience. And what I want to do is sort of just quickly highlight these attributes, these moral attributes, as we're working our way through them. Because the wrong way to think about them is these are just sort of some attributes that are just free-floating and just out there. Um, they are part of who God is. God is magnified or highlighted in some way, in some shape, in some form as we look at these various attributes. And they all intermingle and they all work together. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at God is good and we defined it like this. The goodness of God means that God is the final, final standard of good and all that God is and does is worthy of approval. So it was highlighted that God is the fountain of all good. And everything that God thinks, everything that he says, everything that he does is good. Now, there's goodness in God being good. But then Chase came along that following week and highlighted that God is love. And this comes along and, and, and pairs up with God's goodness because if God was just merely good and was the final standard of good and all that God is and does is worthy of approval, without God's love God could act in a way to where he's just like, well, I'm just going to do things that are good for me. He could spin it around and say, well, I am, of course, a God of good, and because I am a God of good, and goodness is rooted in me, I'm going to do all things so that way that I'll just be um, receiving the end benefits of my goodness. But Chase came along and highlighted God's love, and we defined it like this. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. And it was highlighted that by Chase that love comes and unlocks all these other attributes. So goodness is good because God is also love. And so goodness we experience and we are able to partake of because of God's love. And goodness sort of flows through that channel of God's love. And so now not only is God the final standard of good, and all that he does is worthy of approval, but now he eternally gives of himself to others, and we are now recipients of this good. And we highlighted an uh, area, some attributes of God, that out of his goodness, 
And because of his steadfast love toward us from Exodus 34 last week, we highlighted that God is merciful, God is gracious, and God is patient. So God's goodness and God's love come together to express themselves in these attributes towards sinners. So this week, what we're going to do is turn our attention to God's holiness. And Chase spoke very rightly when he said, love unlocks all the other attributes. Goodness is good because God is love. And we experience that goodness because God eternally gives of himself and of that goodness and of his mercy and of his grace and of his patience toward us. But not only is it true that love unlocks all the other attributes, but holiness comes and gives all these other attributes their luster. So goodness is good, but it's a holy goodness. Love is good, but it's a holy love. It's a holy mercy, a holy grace, holy patience, holy justice, holy righteousness, holy truth. He is holy omnipotent, holy omniscient. This holiness bleeds itself out and touches on all the other attributes and makes them shine and gives them their luster. So what we're going to do is first we're going to start off by looking at and giving a definition so that we can hang some of these following um, thoughts on and we're going to give this definition of holiness. And it looks like this. God's holiness means that God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and he is devoted to seeking his own honor. So when you look at this definition, it really breaks down into into two different ways. There is a very relational quality to this definition. And when we say there's a relational quality to it, what we mean is this. God is constantly relating and interacting with his creation. He is constantly speaking to it, moving within it, orchestrating sovereignly all things for his glory, for his fame, because he is good, because he is love. But there is a relational aspect to God's holiness where when we looked at the definition, it says that God is separated from sin. Because God is holy, he cannot relate to some things. And the one thing that he cannot relate to is sin. God is so pure, God is so good, God is so holy that as he relates to things in his world, there is something that he cannot relate to, and that thing is sin. God has to be separated from sin. God, in relation to sin, must be separated from it. And then the other side of the coin, as we looked at that definition of God's holiness, is not only is there a relational quality to it, that God is relating to or Um, uh, from sin. In this instance, he's separated from it, but there is a very much of a moral quality to it. So for something to be moral or to think of something in moral terms is to be concerned with right or wrong behavior, and it's to be concerned with the goodness or the badness of something. So God relates to sin in this way. He is separated from it, And the reason why he is separated from sin is because sin, and this is where the moral quality comes in, sin is wrong. Sin is bad. It is the complete opposite of who God is. 
So he separates himself from sin because of the moral quality aspect of his holiness. God is separated from sin or evil, but it's not only that God relates in his holiness to sin in the way of he says, well, I'm just separated from this, and then he's just sort of stuck in this weird neutral, just like free-floating, well, I'm, 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 a, I'm separated from this, I'm against this because it is wrong or because it is bad. But then the question is, well, when he separates himself from sin from evil because it is bad or wrong, does he devote himself toward anything? In the separating from, does he separate to anything? And our definition says yes, very much so. In the separation from sin, he cannot relate to it. Does he devote himself to anything? And our answer is yes, he devotes himself to his own honor and to his own glory. Why? Because of the moral quality of his holiness. God is going to separate from the things that are bad and wrong, but he's going to devote himself fully and completely towards those things that are good and those things that are right. And what is the ultimate good? What is the ultimate right that the scripture points to? It says it's rooted and found in God himself. God is our standard of good. God is our standard of right. So God's holiness breaks down to where he separates himself from sin and separates himself to or devotes himself to what is good, what is honorable, what is right, and that is himself. Scripture does not leave a vacuum in speaking this truth to us. We see rooted all over Scripture from front to back that God is holy, and holiness is rooted in God. Holiness is the way God is. To be holy, God does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. So when you open up Scripture, and you see this all over Scripture, what you never see as the writers of the various books and the, and the pages of Scripture, what you never see them do is talking about God in this way, that there is just some sort of like, you know, the sort of organic, sort of out there ideal of what holiness is. And then God comes along and goes, man, that thing out there is really good. I need to raise myself up to that standard so that I can be on level with this standard of what holiness is. Scripture never speaks like that. The way Scripture does speak is like this, that God is the standard of holiness. He does not conform to some standard outside himself He himself, by nature of who he is, is holy, and he is his own standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. His holiness is what it is, and it defines who he is, and that is the standard by which he operates throughout all his creation. In Scripture, you see that God is called the Holy One of Israel, and His name is identified with holiness. Psalm 71, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God, and I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. But the Scriptures also do more than ascribe holiness to God's name. So when we think of God as being holy, as being the standard of holiness, Scripture speak in a way to where they attach that to God's holy name. The name of God is holy, and that 
way his name defines him and describes himself, it gives us a clue into the way God operates. But holiness is more than just an adjective that comes along with his name and teaches us or tells us about who he is. But the writers of Scripture also credit holiness to the very nature of God. This idea of the holiness of God as it relates to his nature indicates that he is absolutely distinct from all his creation because he is holy, and he is exalted above them in infinite majesty. Psalm 99 comes along and gives us in very clear language that because God is holy, there is none like him. He is the only one that exhibits that, that standard or that level of holiness because it emanates and roots and finds itself in him. Psalm 99 says this, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. And so the writer of Scripture there in Psalm 99 is taking us a step beyond just he's more than the Holy One of Israel, although he is the Holy One of Israel, but he is the one who is holy. He is distinct from all of his creation. And then Moses in Exodus 15, when he gives us his psalm of rejoicing after they um, are able to leave Egypt... And they've just seen God do some great and awesome, mighty things. Gives us a psalm of praise, a psalm of rejoicing. In Exodus 15, Moses says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? So Moses even gives us the precedent and lays out for us that there is a majesty. There's something resplendent. There's something that is magnificent with God being holy. If you were to go out and just ask people on the street, whether they have some sort of church background, whether they're unchurched or dechurched or whatever category they might fall into, if you talk to them about the holiness of God, most of them will not ascribe words to God's holiness as Moses does here. Moses looks at the holiness of God and he says, this is majestic. There's some splendor here. There's something magnificent about our God being holy. People don't talk that way. Usually, the holiness of God, when it's talked about within the church and even beyond the four walls of the church, is usually very much downplayed. But when we move beyond God being holy and holiness, this idea of holiness being the standard that he is, and it being rooted in God, the other side of that coin is, as we look throughout Scripture, we see that when we look at man, that man is the complete opposite of God in terms of holiness. So God is holy, and holiness is rooted in God, but then the other side of the coin is this. We are not holy And so what I want to do is focus in on Isaiah 6 and use this as we look at the interaction there between Isaiah and between God and to see that there is a sinfulness or there is an unholiness to man. God is holy and we are not holy. And the classic text on God's holiness is Isaiah 6 
And it really magnifies our first two main points here. Isaiah gets a real glimpse of the Holy One of Israel in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. When you look through this text, and if you talk to people in church, usually the classic text when you're talking about the holiness of God is this interaction here between Isaiah and between God. But what marks out chapter 6 here in the book of Isaiah as being the bright spot that it is, is that chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah paint a very, very bleak picture of the, um, the spiritual um, temperature of national Israel. So if someone could come along and like take a spiritual thermometer and somehow put it into the mouth of Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, the reading that we would get coming back from the spiritual um, temperature of the people of national Israel in these first five chapters is this, is that they are cold, they are spiritually lifeless, and they are distant from their God. When you just start reading through chapter 1, and as you start working through chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, we see that God's children weren't listening or hearing to him anymore. They completely rejected the counsel of God from the word of God. God was rejecting their worship because they refused to do good, they refused to hate evil, and they refused to seek justice. Ultimately, they were a sinful nation laden with iniquity, They were offspring of evildoers and dealers of corruption. They forsook the Lord and they despised the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah 1 verse 4. But the interesting note is, is that this title, this ascribing to God, that name, the Holy One of Israel, finds itself rooted in Isaiah more times than any other book of the Bible. And when you step back and go, well, I, you know, I know what go, what's going to happen here in Isaiah chapter 6, and then we go, well, no wonder. The guy who had like the encounter with God, seeing the hem of his robe fill the temple, the temple was shaking, Isaiah's calling down cursings on himself because he's finally seen the full majestic holiness of God. It's like, it's no wonder that he ascribes to God this phrase, this title, the Holy One of Israel. Yet here's the interesting thing. My guess is if we could do what Brian and Scott did here, if we could somehow pull Isaiah up, sit him down, stick a microphone in his face, and ask him, before you had your encounter with Isaiah, before you had your encounter with God in chapter 6, would you have ascribed holiness to God? And I can guarantee you, he would have said yes. Isaiah would have been linked and counted among the people in Isaiah chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. This was the warp and woof of what he was living in. This was sort of the day in and the day out of the spiritual temperature of the people of Israel. So, Even though we would have said, Isaiah, do you believe that God is holy? Before he has his encounter in Isaiah chapter 6, he would have answered yes. And even though this is true, God knew that Isaiah still needed to have this awesome vision of the Lord. Isaiah would have been grouped in with the people who were not holy. Instead of being separated from sin and devoted to God, 
the people of Israel, including Isaiah himself, were actually devoted to sin and separated from God. And so God, in his goodness, comes and realizes that it takes more than having a knowledge merely that God is holy, but Isaiah needed to have a radical encounter with the very holiness of God so that he would see that when my person, my sin, who I am, is standing naked before a holy God, what I don't do is belittle sin, what I do is say, woe is me. He is literally calling down curses on himself. What he is saying when he has this encounter and says, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What he is really doing is saying, I right now, because I see the very majestic holiness of God, and I see how completely opposite of that I am, I actually need to reserve and I need to receive the covenantal cursings. I don't need to be standing here right now. He is actually calling down curses upon himself because he has seen God for who he is. For up until this time, Isaiah was devoted to sin. The people of Israel were devoted to sin. They were separated from God. And this counter, initiated by God, was about to change all of this. And just as much as Isaiah needed this encounter with God, so do we. Like, right, so this is the temptation that comes to us all the time. What we do is we read accounts of this, like in Isaiah chapter 6, where we go, man, that was really, really cool for Isaiah. But like, I would have been like that one person in all of Israel who wouldn't have needed this. Or we read the book of Judges going, man, those people in the book of Judges who... There was no king in that day. The people did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, and they were basically living like hell. What we do is we read the book of Judges and go, ah, but I would have been like that one person not doing that. And the enemy is satisfied with us thinking like this because what that does is belittle the truth of Scripture, which is this. When we read the book of Judges, when we read the history of the nation of Israel, when we read about the Pharisees in the New Testament, the Scripture is constantly putting before us, you are not like that one holy exception that would have skated through the grid. You are the Pharisees. You would not have seen Jesus for who he is. You are like the people of Israel. Just think about, like, we look at Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were supposed to have been separated from sin and devoted to God, but they failed. We look back and go, ah, but if I was there, I wouldn't have messed this up. It's like, man, no, bro. You would have been Adam. You would have been Eve taking of the fruit, falling for the sin. We look and we read the history of Israel. Israel was God's son. This is language out of Exodus. And was God's son, what they were supposed to have done was separated from sin devoted to God. But then you have this whole fat portion of our Bible called the Old Testament, which shows us that they were not doing that. They actually devoted themselves to sin and separated themselves from God. They failed. The kings come along, and there's that bright blip on the radar with King David coming. But even King David couldn't quite usher in, living out to perfection, this idea of being separated from sin and devoted to God. You see this with his incident with Bathsheba. So over and over again, we have these people who sort of show up on the radar of Scripture. We, see, we, we might get like a bright glimpse, like, man, this, this person might do it. 
Adam and Eve might do it. Israel might do it. The judges might do it. The priests might do it. The prophets might do it. The kings might do it. But it never comes to fruition. Why? Because these people are sinners and they needed a radical encounter like Isaiah has. But yet, even in the midst of all this failure, Adam, Eve, Israel, the kings, even in the midst of all this failure, God still holds his people to the Leviticus 19.2 standard. In Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 11, this phrase shows up throughout Scripture. God says this, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. So even in the midst of God interacting with his people, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve fail, what God does not do is go, man, you failed. There's no way you're ever going to be able to meet this high standard of my holiness, so let me lower my standard so that you can meet me on this lower plane. It doesn't happen. With the nation of Israel, God says, I am the standard of holiness. The people fail. What God does not do is lower his standard of holiness so that the nation of Israel can be right with him. Same with the kings, same with the Pharisees, same with the people that he interacts with in the New Testament, same for you and me. Even though we are unholy, even though because of our sin, we are devoted to sin and separated from God, God never lowers his holiness standard to sinful man. For fellowship with God, he fully expects us to meet this Leviticus 19.2 standard of be holy like I am holy. And with this singular truth, we have presented for us one of the biggest problems in all of Christianity. So the question then becomes, if God is holy and we are not holy and God is not going to lower his standard of holiness, for if he were to lower his standard of holiness, it would be God stopping to be God. He has to maintain his level of holiness because it is who he is, and because God is who he is, he can never lower it down because for the second that he would lower it down, he would completely stop being the God of the Bible. So God maintains a standard and says, I know that you are devoted to sin and you are separated from me, but for you to have fellowship with me, for you to have communion with me, for you to be able to relate to me, you have to meet this standard. And this becomes the biggest problem in all of Christianity, and the scriptures magnify our problem even more clearly. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. King David in Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Left to our own devices, we plunge headlong into our own sin nature, and we love to perform what we do best. We devote ourselves to sin, thereby separating ourselves from God. And the totality of Scripture does not paint a pretty picture in regard to the biblical view of man. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. For there is no one who does not sin. What is man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Proverbs 20, the answer that comes back rhetorically is nobody who can do that. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then to sum it all up, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, right, so I, I love that as God was superintending and, and Paul was writing that, right? So like before I read Romans 3.23 there at the very end, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that big laundry list of the totality of Scripture that says, listen, man, you can't cut it on your own. You have a deceitful heart. You have evil desires. You have bad desires. You are not holy. Actually, actually, you are the complete opposite of holy. You are devoted to sin. You love sin. You have curses and bitterness in your mouth. You love to shed blood. You have hate in your heart. Even if, if, if that verse didn't come in, for all have sinned, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, I can guarantee you somebody to step back and go, man, that's really true of that guy over there, but not true of me. Like even then the enemy comes in and when the totality of Scripture and he levies this, this um, against us, we still somehow want to wiggle our way out of underneath the weight of this truth of Scripture because we are prone to try to justify ourselves before God. To try to say, I'm going to do something to make myself right with God. But Paul comes in and says that is not going to cut it. Because these things that I've just worked through, Paul comes in and says, this is true of you because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, according to Scripture, and this is black. I mean, this is dark. Man is wicked. Man has a heart full of evil continually. Man is not born pure of heart. Man can't make his heart pure. Man's heart is deceitful. Man's heart is desperately sick. Man is not righteous. Man does not seek after God. Man's throat is death. He uses his tongue to deceive. His mouth is full of curses. He sheds blood. He walks in ruin and misery. And he has no fear of God. And yet God comes along and says, My level of holiness, my standard is not budging. You even in this state, still somehow have to meet this level of holiness so that you can have fellowship with me. And this is the condemnation levied against man from the Bible. The best that sinful man brings forth is defiled, and man is a corrupt tree that cannot bear good fruit. The soil of our heart is evil, and the only fruit that springs forth is sin. And what we usually try to do, we being man in general, try to do is we try to fix this problem in two ways. One, we have, you just, we, we, people in the church, outside of the church, just flat out deny the holiness of God, right? Let's just limit it. If this is the standard, let's just pitch the standard. Because once we pitch the standard, then there is no other standard that is objectively true over me. And so then I can just do whatever I want to do. Why? Because then when we pitch the objective, truthful standard of God who says, if you want to have relationship with me, to commune with me, you have to meet the standard. If we throw that away, then we can make our own standard and go, okay, yeah, I might have done a couple doozies in my life, but in general, I'm good. And so when we set up that standard as ourselves 
and pitch God, then what we do is we make ourselves right with ourselves, and then we become very happy with ourselves. So that's one way that man tries to fix the problem. He says, standard too high, don't like what it says, pitch it. And as soon as I pitch it, then I'm good because now I can do whatever I want because there's no other holy God trying to tell me how to live my life. That worldview is rampant everywhere. All you have to do is open your mouth and talk to anybody in the places where you work, and you'll see that that worldview is imbibed readily. Readily. Or the other way we try to fix this problem is, too, is what we'll do is go, okay, uh, yeah, so God is holy, and I can't deny that. I see this in Scripture. But what we do is go, even though God's standard of holiness is so high, I don't want to be unscriptural, for goodness sake. I want to still call God holy. So what we do is we diminish his holiness. And as we diminish the holiness of God, what we do is say, okay, as soon as this goes down and this goes low, then what I can do is now all of a sudden get away with some sin in my life. Right? So if the standard is no longer this high, it comes down low, what we might do is go, okay, man, yeah, some big ones. So I'm not prob- I should, probably shouldn't murder anybody. I probably shouldn't go and commit adultery. But I mean, but if I am just um, full of backbiting, if I'm not full of love, if I'm not full of grace, if I don't exhibit patience toward my wife, sort of like these, these acceptable sins, what we do is go, well, I mean, it's not a big deal, right? I mean, God, you're cool with this, Right? And lowering, like, God, your, your holiness isn't here, it's here. And if it's down here, right, there's some big things that we probably shouldn't do, but all these little things, like, we'll, we'll be okay with that. And so we diminish the holiness of God because if God isn't too holy, well, then some of my sins just aren't too bad. And this becomes a form of self-justification, and at its root is just Christless. It's Christless. In the diminishing of the holiness of God, so that we can somehow say, I want God to be not too holy, holy enough that will stop me from actually, like, you know, committing murder or doing something, but not so holy to where, you know, I can be that guy at work who cheats, or that guy at work who's backbiting, or that guy at work who likes to tell lies so he can get some more money for himself or whatever. When we do that, what we're trying to do is justify ourselves before God because we don't want God's holiness to conform us to himself. What we want God to do is to conform himself to us so that we can continue doing what we want to do. So God is holy and we are unholy and there is a gigantic problem here because God says, this is the standard. This is the standard. So then the question has to become, if you're talking to anybody about Jesus, and as you highlight these two categories, what is the answer? What bridges the gap? What comes along and enables us to be right with God and to be able to meet that standard? And is this, that Jesus is the one who fixes the problem. Jesus is the one who fixes the problem. God's holiness is fully expressed at the cross. The cross the gospel of the cross, the good news of the cross, and the Christ who was crucified on it is the good news that comes along and says, yes, John, you can never meet this standard, but there is one who has met the standard. There is one who came and who was pinned on the tree 
And through the shedding of his blood, you can now meet the standard. Why? Because Jesus Christ met that standard. Jesus Christ was perfectly pure, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. He is the one who is the better Adam. He never failed like Adam failed. He never failed like Israel failed. He never failed like the prophets failed. He never failed like the kings failed. He never failed like you and I fail. Jesus Christ is the one who comes and succeeds in every single way, and he's the one who stands in the gap between holy God and unholy man. And as he stands in the gap, as the God-man, he can, on God's behalf, say, I can make you right through the sacrifice of myself because he is the God-man. And then he can stand in the gap on behalf of man and go, because I am also 100% man, he can mediate, stand in the gap, and make us right with the holy God. And this is the good news of the Scriptures. This is the great exchange. The pure Jesus for impure man. Holy God for unholy man. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is the wrath absorbing substitute for our sins. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When Jesus Christ was pinned to the cross... And God's wrath for all sin, past, present, and future, was poured out on him. He is the one who stands in the gap, the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And the scriptures hold that truth up, and like a shining beacon, it goes forth and says, You have a problem. I have a problem. It's that I am not holy and there's nothing that you or I can do to make myself right. And all of Scripture funnels like a laser through history to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus, and points to the cross and says, the big problem of all Scripture funnels and roots itself on the cross and the shed blood, the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And that is the good news. This is the gospel of the cross, the good news of the cross. Where others have failed, Jesus succeeded. And we need the cross and the crucified Christ. So how can we respond to this today? How can we respond in a right way that would exhibit this truth that we know from Scripture that God is holy? And it is in two ways, and it will be done. For one, for the unbeliever that is here, The simple question that you just have to ask is, are you holy? Are you holy like what we've just been talking about? And this isn't, are you holy in the sense of, are you doing good deeds so that you can sort of be holy? This isn't, are you holy in the sense of, well, man, I, I, you know, I go to church and I try real hard. You know, I tend not to yell at my wife or flip out my kids and I don't cheat too much at work because that kind of mentality, when you're answering the question of, are you holy, is that diminishing of God's holiness? Because what you're trying to do is go, man, I do some bad, but I do some good, so maybe God, if he's not too holy, will sort of let me skate in to heaven and have communion and relationship with him. 
I'm not talking about that when I ask, are you holy? Are you holy is this. Have you had an Isaiah 6 encounter? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you stopped justifying yourself and trying to diminish and lie to yourself by diminishing the holiness of God and you said, I see the standard is this high. I see there is no way in a million years I could ever attain that standard. I need the holiness of another to be applied to my account. I turn from my sins and I place my faith in Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation. The other way that we can respond is more for believers. Because God is holy, we should desire to be conformed to him. God's command is, remember to us, you shall be holy for I am holy. But the good news is, is that Peter comes along in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he teaches us something by taking that exact phrase from Leviticus and applying it to New Testament believers. God's command is, you shall be holy for I am holy. The gospel of the cross frees us. So when you flip over to 1 Peter 1, Peter says these things. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Therefore, since this is true, since we have our God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter's pointing us to the cross. We have a crucified Christ who was crucified on the cross, but he was buried, but he burst forth. He's been resurrected. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He defeated death. Therefore, since these are true, verse 13, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. And he gives us this thought, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Because God is holy, we should desire to be conformed to him. And here's the good news. The gospel of the cross actually frees you to be able to do that. And this is the good news. Because it's no longer just a guy like me standing up in front of you saying, hey, the standard's here. You better strive really hard so you can meet that standard. The good news is Jesus steps on the scene and says, listen, I have accomplished everything on that cross. I have caused you to be born again to a living hope. And so what he comes along and says in verse 13 is this. Listen, there's a day coming when the full-blown magnificence of Jesus Christ is going to be revealed. And that grace that we have received now in bringing us to salvation will be full and will be complete in that day. So what we ought to do is fully lean and fully rest and fully set our hopes on that coming day that this little bit of grace that I've got now that brought me to salvation will be full and will be complete on that day of revelation, that day when Jesus Christ has been shown to be the magnificent holy God that he is. And so since Paul, Peter is coming along and saying, set your hope on this future day, Realize the grace that you have tasted now that's brought you to salvation and equips you and is going to become 
complete on that day, it actually equips you now on this day to be conformed not to the passions of your former ignorance, but it actually equips you now to be holy in all your conduct. Why? Because he is holy and we are to be holy. So it's no longer, man, I've got to strive really hard, but our future hope that the grace we've tasted now actually comes back and equips us in the present to go forward and go, man, I can, I can step forward by the grace of God now because the cross has freed me not to live for myself but to live a holy life. I can live out a life of holy conduct, not leaning and resting on myself, but leaning and pressing hard going, man, there's a future day that's coming for me, a future hope, and the future hope and the goodness that is going to be all that that is actually informs my present and the grace that I've tasted now will be made complete there so that grace I'm tasting now just equips me to step forward, to step forward, to step forward. So tomorrow when you go to work, it could be a simple prayer like this. God, help me to realize that because I have a future hope secured in you because you are the one who secured me, that grace that I'm going to taste in its full completeness then, I actually have some, I have I've tasted of that now. God, help me tomorrow by your grace, to live a life of holy conduct. To not diminish you in any way, but to realize that there is a standard that you have set, and I can now, with freedom and with joy in my heart, strive for that standard. It's not a new law. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. We all do. But what you do is you can go, I've stumbled. I've fallen. I have failed. God help me. And God comes along and he helps you, and he gives you grace new for that day. And you step up and you truck. You go forward, God help me, give me the grace to live holy today. Give me the grace to live holy today. Not because of anything on my own, all because of Jesus Christ. And you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, but then what you do is go, by the grace of God, I'm so thankful that I'm justified by Jesus Christ and not by my works. I root myself in Jesus. You stand up and go, God, give me the grace to go forward. And that is how we progress in holiness. That is how we progress in holiness. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us. And as we're praying, we're going to go into our time of communion. Um, If you are a believer, this is a beautiful way to come forward and to confess a heart of gratitude saying, I'm so thankful that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed on my behalf. If you are a Christian and you are here today, we welcome you to the table to come and celebrate communion with us. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you were to answer this question, are you holy with no According to the standard scriptures, I am not holy. We ask you not to partake of this, but to consider and to respond in such a way to where you consider that Jesus Christ can come and has a made way for you to be holy. So let's pray. The band will come and we'll take, partake of communion. God, we thank you for um, your goodness. God, we just ask that as we move into this time of taking communion, that God, that you would just stir up in our hearts um, affections for Jesus. Stir up joy in our heart that Jesus is the one who has made us, the unholy, holy. God, for those of us who are here who are not believers in Christ, God, I pray that today the word would land on them heavily, rightly guiding them and showing them that Jesus is the one who stands in the gap and can make them right with God. God, we love you and we thank you for your gift of yourself on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.